Well, let's uh, return again to little epistle of Jude. And we'll pick up where we left off last time from verse 14, reading through to verse 16. Okay, Jude, verse 14. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words. Flattering people to gain advantage. Amen. So reads God's most precious word. Let us pray. Our gracious, gracious God, we earnestly desire that the Holy Spirit would take these words and speak through them. That the Holy Spirit would take our minds and help us to think through these things. Take our hearts and stir them. Take our wills and bring them underneath the over, overruling power of your majesty. We ask, Lord, that we would leave this little meeting tonight having uh, been instructed from your word, having been ministered to by the Holy Spirit, having been built up in our faith. Uh, we thank you for this midweek meeting, time of fellowship, ministry and prayer. Be with those unable to be with us this evening. Some are on holiday, some recovering from hospital operations, some laid aside with sickness. Lord, you know each uh, each individual where they are, their cares, their concerns. And we pray that, Lord, you would surround them and strengthen them and be their portion. The Lord, lead us out in our study this evening. To the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, here in these verses, we come face to face with the reality of the final judgment, the reality of that judgment we've just been singing about in our opening hymn. That reality of the final judgment is represented also in that phrase which you find there at the end of verse 6, where Jude uh, refers to the angels being Uh, kept, reserved in chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So keep that idea of the consummation of all things. You know, this uh, time of reckoning. Keep that idea in mind as we look at this portion of Jude. Because what Jude has been writing about comes in the light of the fact that his concern for those to whom he writes is framed uh, in the finality of that great day when each one of us will stand before God. So he's writing, as he tells us at the very beginning, to the called, in other words, to the saints, to the sanctified. And it's important to remember that he's writing to the followers of Jesus Christ. This is not a pastoral epistle, as we said when we began the study of it. It's a general epistle. 
so he's not writing, you know, specifically or solely to pastors, elders, to watch the flock, although that's entailed in that, obviously. But he's writing to those uh, who are part and parcel of the household of faith. He is writing to a congregation or congregations who were the recipients of this letter, and he's urging them to contend for the faith that had been once for all delivered unto them. And he's been alerting them to the fact that there has crept in among them false teachers. They haven't noticed this happening. These false teachers have crept in surreptitiously, uh, and they are actually there now. It's not that beware they're coming, uh, as Peter alludes to in his epistle, but Judah saying, no, they are here now, they are in your midst. And the reason for Jude's concern is because these false teachers are seeking to pervert the grace of God and to turn it into an opportunity or an excuse for um, licentiousness, uh, for sexual sensuality. So um, their strategy, the strategy of these false teachers was basically very straightforward. And as they peddled uh, their false teaching, they were basically denying the finality and the reality of God's sovereign control over all things. Uh, presumably, they would be saying to, to people, um, you know, you shouldn't really worry about these old ideas. Uh, a lot of that is sort of, you know, old hat, it's ancient stuff. You know, you shouldn't be thinking about God as a God of judgment, as a God of wrath. <clears throat> you know, think about him as a God of love. Uh, think about, you know, God in ways other than in terms of a God of judgment. You know, don't be thinking in that way. But Jude has been teaching these believers that very thing, that God is a God of judgment. He is a God of holiness. He's been teaching them very, very clearly uh, about the fact of judgment. And these individuals, these certain men who have crept in, although he doesn't identify them by name, um, nor does he identify them by the content of their teaching, but rather he chooses to identify them by drawing, if you like, an identical uh, picture so that people might, you know, understand what you need to be looking out for, you know, when occasions like this arise. Um, and I think I mentioned a few times about, you know, Jude doesn't mention names. And if I remember rightly, the last study I did, I mentioned the name of John Stevens because of an article that was in Evangelicals Now. You know, you know Jude didn't mention names, why are you mentioning names? And, uh, but you find that temp uh, Paul mentioned names when he gets to Timothy about those who were um, undermining the faith. Uh, so it's not that you never mention names, um, but I think it's good to weigh up, you know, when you when to mention names and when not to. Maybe that was a fault, if I could put it this way, about, uh, you know, Spurgeon with the downgrade movement. You know, Spurgeon didn't mention names. He said, I think there's a downgrade. But when he was asked, well, who are the people? 
you know, name names and he, and he wouldn't do it. And that was probably a failing. Maybe he should have said, these are the men. Um, maybe he was studying Jude at the time and thought, well, Jude doesn't mention names, so I won't mention names. But, uh, you know, Jude in this case, you know, he doesn't choose to identify them by name, but he draws a picture of them. These are the type of people you need to be watching out for. These are, these are what they're like. So, as I say, last time, which was about a month ago now, um, you know, in verses 12 and 13, we recognized that these people had made, they had made great promises. Promises that they ultimately couldn't fulfill. And so he's warning his readers, Judah's warning his readers about the, the dangers of following these false teachers. And again, as we have noted throughout our studies, it is important also that we keep in mind that Jude is alerting his readers not, this is not a threat that is coming from the outside, but rather this, this is a threat that is inside and inside already. So it's a threat of declension from within. And that's what he's warning his readers about. So, as we come to verse 14, Jude goes on to reinforce. Now you get that. What he's doing is he is reinforcing what he has said about the, uh, the condemnation that awaits these individuals. The condemnation uh, that you see that is mentioned there in verse 4, certain men have crept in. Okay, they crept in on notice who were marked out for this condemnation. You know, ungodly men who turned, and got, who, uh, turned the grace of God into lewdness, etc. So, um, he's, he's mentioned already in verse 4 that these people are marked out for condemnation, as he, as he does also in verse 9. So he does again in verse 14. He, he's, he's referring to extra-biblical material with which his initial readers would have been very familiar. And he introduces this by reminding them of Enoch there in verse 14. Okay, so he's keeping the theme of judgment. And in verse 9, he uses extra-biblical material. Verse 14, he goes back to this extra-biblical material. Um, now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now, we know who Enoch is. You know, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you will know that he appears in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. We're told that he walked with God. He was taken up by God into heaven so that he might not see death. Now, the writer to the Hebrews in that uh, chapter on the heroes of faith chronicles that for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. So Jude tells us that Enoch prophesied of the judgment that will come in that great day. Now, Jude is simply referring to what Enoch said, which I said was extra-biblical, which was not inspired as the scriptures, but what Enoch actually actually uh, was saying actually reinforced everything that you can find in the Bible itself about the judgment and about these, these very things. And what Jude is saying is that the prophecy of Enoch <clears throat> had immediate application to these certain men, the certain men of verse 4, these infiltrators that had crept in. 
Now, if you look at verse 16, uh, we'll, we'll look back at it from there. Do you see how he identifies these certain men again in a similar way to what he did in verse 13? First of all, he says these are grumblers. Okay, this is not somebody moaning because their coffee's too cold or because their fish and chips are soggy. Okay, it is much more serious than that and far more significant than that. The reference, of course, is uh, not only to the experience of the people who were brought out of Egypt, which we looked at in verse 5, who were grumblers, complainers. Uh, it's also referencing, you know, uh, you know, the time in Exodus uh, when they, they thirsted for, uh, for water. And there was no water, and they're grumbling and they're complaining. You know, why don't we have any water? Why didn't we stay in Egypt? And, uh, you know, so the, these people, they are grumbling, they are complaining. They complained about the manna, didn't they? Uh, we're sick of this manna, this bread from heaven. We want something else. Uh, and so they're always grumbling, they're always complaining. And um, Judah's highlighting this here. You know, the, 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 these people are exactly the same. There's nothing new under the sun. Just as they complained and grumbled and moaned in, in Exodus so you find the same today. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered or who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. You're all going to die in the wilderness. Except, of course, for Caleb and Joshua, um, the son of Jephna, or Caleb, the son of Jephna, and Joshua, the son of Nun. They're not going to die. And so, so God passes judgment on these complainers. Now, just to be clear, they were complaining to God. And they were complaining about God and about what God had done or what God hadn't done. And as a result of rebelling against God, they forfeited their entry into the promised land. And so Judah is saying, be very, very careful that you don't follow these people. You know, who offer you so much, promise you so much, and they end up being complainers, and it's infectious, and you end up in the same camp as them. You be careful that you don't follow these wandering stars. Because in the same way as happened before to the grumblers all those years ago, those who face judgment in this mentality, those who face judgment in this mindset will not enter the promised land. And so he's saying, beware. Secondly, they were complainers. They're unhappy with their given place. Now, again, notice that it's the place that they have actually chosen for themselves. Okay, have you got that? It's the place that they have actually chosen for themselves. It's not that they were put somewhere that they didn't want to be. 
It's not that they you know, were forced with their arms up their back into a particular corner that they didn't want to go. But no, no notice, notice the phrase. They were walking according to their own lusts. So by their own evil desires, they have rebelled against God. They have said, we are not going to do it God's way. We're going to do it our own way around here. Uh, And now they discover the consequences. The consequences of their unreasoning, instinctive, degrading behavior. And you get it with a whole trans issue, don't you? Um, The consequences of their unreasoning behavior. You see, I never never infect the church. You know, when we were on holiday, Roberta got a, a text. I, I don't know, I honestly don't know if it was, uh, it wasn't a joke or satirical or what, I don't know, but it was from, from a, a guy, that, a Christian guy that she knows, and he said, it's all up, it's all up in the air, trying to remember what you said, it's all up in the air when you take your child to the, holiday bible club to register and the question on the registration form is what gender pronoun does your child prefer um uh, is it a joke like um and and so these things creep in and the church begins to follow it because it's PC, because it's a thing to do. And it's unreasonable. It's degrading behavior. And so Jude's very up to date, as we said from the very beginning of this little study. Uh, and so verses, you go back to verses 10, verses 10 and 11, where it refers to like brute beasts, they corrupt themselves. And judgment upon them, woe to them. And, you know, this, this stuff, is, it is difficult stuff. It's negative stuff, isn't it? It's depressing stuff at times. And we can't be casual about it. We just can't sort of brush over it. And when you read Jude and you read those, uh, you know, verses 10 and 11 off Jude, and if your mind is sort of running at all and you're sort of connecting verses of scripture with verses of scripture your mind runs to Romans chapter 1 because this is reminiscent of what Paul writes in chapter 1 of Romans you know they turned their backs on God they said we don't want to do it God's way around here we'll do it our way we don't care about you we don't care about your laws we don't care about your views on marriage we don't care about your views on sexuality Paul highlights that in Romans chapter 1 And so God gives them over, you know, like brute beasts, to their their own passions. We'll please ourselves. And God gives them up. And then when God gives them up and they find themselves in that quagmire of sin, and they're grumbling and complaining, they're unhappy people, they're angry people, because, you know, sin doesn't deliver. And so Judah's saying, beware. You know, beware. And thirdly, they mouth great swelling words. You know, they're loud mouth posters. 
They have all kinds of big stories, big words, big words about themselves, little words about God. Just like he's saying, essentially saying to those around them, you know, we're mature people, we've come of age, we're free people. And, you know, really at the end of the day, we, we feel sorry for you lot, uh, you know, you slavish, literal-minded people bound by the Bible that curtails and restricts yourselves. Um, you know, why just don't you get out of that mindset and come to us where we're freer and it's more relaxed and there'll be no judgmental attitudes and you can find joy, you know, superficial joy. But, but that's what the promise, isn't it? And they're saying to you, you know, you cast all of that aside, cast all that Bible teaching aside, don't be restrained by those things, and they mouth great swelling words. And they're flattering people. You will notice that they flatter in order to gain advantage. And they'll tell you how great you are, etc., etc. And they'll tell you what a, an attractive program that they have that would just suit you. Uh, because we know the type of people that you are and the type of person you are uh, that, that you are in our program will uh, will make a few demands upon you. Uh, you'll be able to come and go as you please. And uh, they promise all of these all of these great things and they don't deliver. Few few demands and instantaneous reality disappears, doesn't it, in, in the cloud of uh, depression because you're not fed. Now, you don't, as I say, you don't have to look very far to find that story within the framework of the professing church in our day. You know, as I say, people saying, don't listen to the Bible. Don't listen to, you know, the folks who are teaching the Bible and telling you this is how God expects you to live your life, a life of holiness. They'll stand up and say, you know, we have the dreamers. We have the people who are in touch with God here and now. Well, we know him in a mature way that... Uh, speaks other than through the Bible. Do you realize, you know, how new believers are susceptible to that sort of talk and are led astray? And sadly, some who are older believers, longer in the faith, get way led by it also. And Jude says, look, I'm giving you a picture of what these people are like. The empty promises that they make and I'm telling you about this so that you do not swallow what they say, hook, line, and sinker. This is a warning that I'm giving you, as well as an exhortation to contend for the faith. Here's J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of what you know, we've just been considering there. These men who complain and curse their fate while trying all the time to mold their life according to their own godless desires. These are the men who split communities, for they are led by human emotions and never by the Spirit of God. That's how Philip's paraphrases it. Now, it's very, very important that we understand that the nature of what Jude is addressing here uh, this is, is not just another perspective of, in things. This is a flat-out denial of Jesus Christ as Master, Lord, and King. That's, that's what Jude is driving at here. It's a complete reversal of what 
of that which had been delivered from the very beginning to the people of God. Uh, so, just basically to to round this off for this evening, three because it's been very negative. Like uh, here are three. Well, I hope there are three encouraging positives uh, for ourselves as believers. Number one, the Lord comes. Okay, now that, that's encouraging for a believer. Okay, that's positive for a believer. In the, in the sin, curse, sin, sick world, when at the minute, particularly in Western democracies, reason seems to have gone out the window. Um, and you despair. Um, you know, I think some folks put on the WhatsApp group about uh, signing the petition against Costa a few weeks ago over the ad that they had, sort of like encouraging mutilation of, uh, of young girls. Uh, and you, you think, you're being your head of a brick wall. And then Jude says, look, the Lord comes. Okay, he's coming back. God's not oblivious to this. He hasn't lost control. And for the believer, you remember the Lord comes. And so he says in verse 14, Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesies. Behold, the Lord comes. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now that is not a unique statement, beloved. You find it also in Deuteronomy when Moses blesses the people of God and he uses the very same phraseology. The Lord came from Sion with thousands upon thousands of his saints. Daniel pictures the great scene where the Ancient of Days emerges and with him 10,000 times 10,000 standing before the throne. So you go through the Old Testament scriptures and you realize that there is this unfolding picture of God Almighty as the divine warrior. You know, God's not pushed against the ropes here. God hasn't thrown in the towel and said, Satan, you win. No, God is fighting. God is the warrior God appearing from heaven to establish justice and righteousness on the earth. That is the anticipation which finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus because Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen. Jesus is coming back, just as he promised. Now, it's not conjecture. It's not wishful thinking. It's fact. Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes, not if, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. Beloved Jesus is coming again. And when we go to prayer, uh, we can pray for his coming. Secondly, not only does Jesus come, but Jesus judges. Judges who? Verse 15. Judges all the ungodly. And so four times he mentions the ungodly in verse 15. All the ungodly are mentioned one after the other. And the fact that the matter is that judgment and judgment immediately refuted in the minds of people because 
you know, defying judgment sounds so awful, sounds so strange. They don't want to think about, you know, defying judgment. It actually appears to be unjust, you know, to say that God's coming and he's going to judge the ungodly. Yeah, we understand God's going to judge the Hitlers and the Fred Wests, etc. of this world. But who's the ungodly? The, the ungodly is, is your wee granny that isn't saved. And it sounds so unjust that God would judge a wee granny who's not saved. But God looks at them and says they're ungodly. All the ungodly. And that's why we should be dri- driven to prayer. To pray for these people in their own families. You know, brothers and sisters, as often said, Loved ones who are unsaved. God says they are ungodly. That's God's estimation of them. And they're going to be judged. And we need to be praying. That when Jesus comes. Those within our own household of faith. That we would know household salvation. As Paul says in the Acts of the Apostles. Because friends. God is, God is a holy God. Perfectly Holy. And if he is perfection in his holiness, it's hard for us to conceive of how, how good is the goodness of God, if you know what I mean. And, all, and at the same time, to face up to how messed up we are and spoiled we are by evil. You know, the evil in our lives, the sin in our lives. And both of these positions, pole positions, you know, the holiness of God and the goodness of God and our evilness, our wretchedness, they're hard to swallow, you know, because people don't understand the holiness of God and they reject against the, they react against the judgment of God. You know, how could a God of love judge people? Well, God's a God of holiness, and that's why he judges. And that's why we need our Bibles, because it's a Bible that informs us. The Bible reveals to us, you know, how holy God is. And so, Christ is coming. Christ will judge. He will judge the ungodly. And Jesus saves. You know, that's why I said we should be driven to pray, and to evangelize. Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, And if Jesus was not the saviour, we would be stuck. We would be up the creek without a paddle. God has created us for himself. We have rebelled in Adam against him, as we know. But he has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has washed us. He has cleansed us. And our judgment, the judgment that we deserve, is meted out upon Christ on the cross. I know condemnation I dread. Because Christ is born the condemnation. Jesus came in that rescue mission from heaven. The Jesus who comes to separate the sheep and the goats on the day of judgment is the same Jesus who stood looking over Jerusalem and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have, I would have gathered you to myself, but you wouldn't come to me. Jesus is the only God and Saviour, as we will come to in verse 25 eventually. And it's to this only God and only Saviour that we continually point people to. 
Because Christ is the only hope. He's the only hope for this broken world. He's the only hope for broken lives. You have to bring it down to the individual, don't you? He's the only hope for broken hearts. The the demands of God's law have been met in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Okay, we've met, we've, we've broken God's law. But the perfect obedience that God required in the keeping of the law that we couldn't keep, Jesus has borne that on the cross. The penalty for our sins has been paid in the burying of the death of Jesus Christ. The power of the death of Christ has, has been broken in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That, that sin that had power over us. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, shouted, you don't need to worry about it anymore. I've gotten you the victory. There's the evidence of it. Look at the empty tomb. God has accepted. God the Father has accepted the, uh, the sacrifice. And so let's be encouraged that, yes, Jesus is coming again. The ungodly are going to be judged. Let that be a motivation for evangelism and for serious prayer. And let's look to Jesus our only saviour, and pray that he would guide us as we traverse this uh, sin-cursed world.